don't ever say to your child, I would do anything for you. Number one, it's not true. You're not a saint. And if you're a saint, then where's your child gonna put their anger toward you? They're gonna think I must be, if I'm angry at my mother and she would do anything for me, I must be really disturbed and sick, right? It's an idea that suggests that you're perfect and it's nonsense. Welcome to A Way Through, brought to you by Archway Academy, where education meets recovery. Archway is a sober high school in the sunny heart of Houston, Texas. We meet the individual educational needs of teens recovering from substance use disorder with care, compassion, respect, and rigor. Archway is the largest recovery high school in the nation, and we are here to remind you that you may not be able to see it now, but something different is possible. This is A Way Through. Hi, and welcome to A Way Through. I'm your host, Jamie Edwards, and we're thrilled to have you join us. If you have not listened to any of our previous podcasts, we ask that you go back and listen to those after today's episode. We also invite you to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And hope that you will follow us on YouTube and Instagram at Archway Academy, and also on Facebook at Archway Academy H. TX. Our message on a way through is that you may not be able to see it now, but something different is possible. There is a way through teen substance use and mental and behavioral health issues. When you subscribe, like, or share our podcast, it helps others to be able to hear our message that students and worried families in the throes of teenage substance use will hear viable options for restoring their child's physical, mental, emotional, and academic health. We are super excited. On today's show, we are joined by Dr. Brad Reedy. He is an author and co-owner, clinical director of Evoke Therapy Programs, and also a host on Finding You at Evoke Therapy Podcast. The name of his two books are The Audacity to Be You, Learning to Love Your Horrible Rotten Self, and The Journey of the Heroic Parent, your child's struggle, and the road home. So we will drop links on where to buy the books. We'll drop a link to his podcast in the show notes and then also to Evoke. But just to kick things off, I would love, uh, Brad, if you would tell me about Evoke. Sure. Happy to. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here with you today. Evoke Therapy Programs is really, a. we have two principal programs. We have a lot of services, but our our principal program is we're a wilderness therapy program. Some people may know about that, of course, some won't, but you can think of it as camping therapy, right? We're a primitive living nomadic model, which means we're not getting in cars and doing a lot of adventure, but we're really camping outside and moving from place to place. And in small group sizes from seven to nine clients and three to four staff, that, that, that small living environment becomes grist for the mill. You know, one of the challenges with, with adolescents, with anybody really, adolescents maybe more so, is that self-report is unreliable. People don't know what they don't know and they can't talk about their issues and, the, and there's also defense about that. But wilderness therapy exposes it. You know, the rain, the snow, the cold, the wind, the heat, the bugs, the challenge of, of, of putting a campsite together with seven or eight other participants will, will bring up for you everything that, that, that's relevant, communication, problem solving, frustration tolerance. I like to teach people that in the context of wilderness therapy, that NASA uses wilderness therapy with its teams. If you were to Google Harvard University 
and NASA and wilderness therapy would find the studies where they take teams that haven't worked together and they put them in wilderness settings like ours in order to, to, to build team trust and to create vulnerability. The exercises and kind of contrived experiences that we do with team building, they have found not to be as effective, us too, as really just giving people an opportunity to kind of get into life and, and, and work through the difficulties of moving from one campsite to another campsite five miles a day five miles away. And, and so everything comes up in that, all the therapy that you need, just like a, a child playing baseball, you could teach them the lessons of life or fishing. You could teach them the, the lessons of life. Wilderness therapy does that. So it's a really powerful, impact, impactful, provocative intervention. The second arm of our program is our intensive program. So individuals of any age, they don't have to be in acute crisis, can come to our Finding You program. We also have Finding Family for families and Finding Connections for couples. So two to seven day programs, where we use psychodrama, we focus on family of origin and history with each participant to help them understand how their challenges that they're presented with today, whether it be parenting a, a child who's struggling or maybe difficulty in their marriage, how that relates back to that. Because we firmly believe in all of our program programming that the secret to discovering who we are today and how to do what we need to do, to do today in our life is found in part by looking back and understanding how we were built, how we were made what context we came from. So intensive programming at our Invoke Intensives and then Invoke Wilderness is kind of our our, our two approaches. Then we have other small programs that, that come out of those, but that's mainly what we do. And I, I just love doing it. That sounds fantastic. And, you know, it's interesting when you say that about put them in a camping situation and everything that needs to come up comes up because yeah. we find that when we see kids eight hours a day, 40 hours a week, sure. put them in a school situation. And everything that needs to come up comes up. Right. Um, right. We definitely see that. And last week on the podcast, we had Dean Porterfield. With, oh, no, Dean. Yeah. 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 And he, they've actually added fly fishing to their programming for the exact reason that you just said. Because exactly. take the boys out to fish and everything that needs to come up will come up eventually. So Absolutely. As a fly fisherman and a therapist, that, that's a great, great idea. Yeah. And, you know, it was really interesting, too, to talk about the difference between males and females and the therapeutic models that are used based right. on sex and the differences between some of the addiction issues, mm. male versus female. So all of that was really fascinating. I love to hear what you guys are doing in your program. I also want to talk about your books. Full disclosure, I think I've shared it on here before. I'm the parent of, of a child who has struggled with substance use. So when I look at these titles, The Journey of the Heroic Parent, that just really speaks to me. Yeah. So I want to ask you, what does that title refer to? Yeah. It's, it's borrowed from a man by the name of Joseph Campbell. And Joseph Campbell was, is, even though he's passed away, the, the foremost expert on mythology of, yes. of all time. He studied all the world's myths from all cultures, anywhere from you know, traditional religions, to rituals, to storytelling, to movies, to books. In fact, Star Wars was based on Joseph Campbell's work, his original monumental book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And basically what, what Joseph Campbell discovered and showed to the world was in all of these stories, there's really just one story. And that story is something he called the hero's journey. It's the story of going out for the thing, you know, the Holy Grail was the thing that, that King Arthur's knights were looking for. In the movie Rocky that I loved as a kid, it was you know the heavyweight title of, of the world in boxing. 
But what happens along the way is really the lesson. And oftentimes, the hero doesn't come back with the grail or the heavyweight title. I remember when I was a kid, we were arguing on the basketball court about whether or not Rocky won or lost. He, he lost the first fight in the first movie. But the reason that you didn't notice that and that there was a debate at all is because the hero comes back with something more, and that is a, a, a clearer sense of themselves, of who they are. And so for me, the, the, the grail is parents that send a child who's struggling with substance use or mental health issues. That's the grail, the thing they're seeking for. But along the way, them being the hero themselves in their own story, they learn how to listen in ways they never had, how to see where they couldn't see, how to, how to own their own uh, serenity, their own feelings, their own process. And so for me, the hero's journey is a wonderful metaphor and story to talk about parents who are struggling to support a child who's struggling. So it's, it's borrowing on, on that motif. And at the end of the day, I, I write at the end of the book, you might not get what you were looking for, but you'll come back with, with a different version of yourself, a more authentic, deeper version of yourself. And that will bring joy and the ripple effects of that in, uh, on your child's life or on the life of others around you is absolutely profound. Absolutely. I could not agree more. And it, it's very moving to hear you say all that as Thank a you. parent. And I just think in my own life, like what a different trajectory my life has been on because of my daughter's struggles. and. You know, in through the mix of it all, it has definitely been something that has changed me and allowed me to open my worldview and and to just view life differently. And as my coworker says, who's who's also a parent, it's just added texture to our life that we absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's you'll break and you'll bleed and you'll struggle, and on the other side of that, you'll have a deeper connection to yourself and thus a deeper connection to everybody else that you love. Absolutely. 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 And hearing you talk about Campbell, he's a fan favorite, or he mm. is somebody who is referred to by a local Houston fan favorite, which is Brene Brown. She talked about oh, right, him right, right. in her work. That kind of answers also my second question, but maybe you can elaborate a little bit more. What is a heroic parent? When I first, my, my publisher came up with the title and, and spent us like a day with her entire team. And I, I bought it. I liked it. But when it, when it came out, people said, well, I don't want to be a hero. I just want to be a good enough parent. So right. why, why do you say heroic parent? And what I explained to answer the question, it's a very simple thing. Again, borrowing on Joseph Campbell is a hero is the person who's willing to look at themselves. Mm. A heroic parent fundamentally is a parent who's willing to look at themselves, which means that you walk into a support group for the parents or the loved ones of alcoholics. You walk into the adult children of alcoholics meeting and look at yourself. You go to therapy. So for me, the heroic parent is the person who's willing to look at themselves and their contribution to the situation and their contribution to their own unhappiness. Contrasting that with, it's just happening to me. You know, the opposite of a hero is kind of a victim. It's happening to me in my life. I'm not in control of my own serenity. And that's that, that, that contrast kind of tells you again what a hero is. A hero is saying how I'm living my life is determining my, my happiness, my serenity, my, my meaning in my life. So that's the heroic parent is the parent, parent who's willing to do their work. Right. In, in my own personal journey, it it was a huge turning point whenever I realized, you know, Jimmy, nobody's coming to save you. Yeah. Nobody's going to save you. If you're going to survive this mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, it's going to be because you do the work. I, I relate to that so much. I can tell you my last episode, I said that exact thing. It's not the first time I've said it, but I said, 
I spent the first 40 years of my life waiting for somebody to come along and rescue me. Yep. And, and of course, I need people to support me as I rescue myself, so to speak. I need to find a therapist and a sponsor and, and support folks in my life that can be there for me. But I, res I relate and resonate with what you just said so much because I lived the first half of my life with that same expectation. And it wasn't until I realized I was the only one that was going to save me that I, I found the door out of the, out of the prison that I was living in. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. So tell me a little bit about the audacity to be you learning to love your horrible, rotten self. What does that subtitle mean? You know, the subtitle really comes from my therapy, like a lot of my writing does, where once you can make peace with who you are, I believe that the goal of therapy is to become who you are, that the goal in therapy is when you find a connection to your authentic self, the, the self that you gave up when you were a child to find safety so that your parents wouldn't be disappointed or angry or worried. The parts of yourself, the feelings that you have that you found that, that parents and teachers and other adults found threatening and, and, and told you was not acceptable. That to love your horrible, rotten self is to love your dilemma. I, I say this with my wife. She's a therapist. And I, I've written this before that to fall in love with somebody is to fall in love with their dilemma. And that includes yourself. And so I wrote this today on my Instagram. I said, it speaks to this horrible, rotten self idea. And it came out of some, some work that I was doing with some folks. Mental health isn't about getting better as much as it is realizing how crazy you are. Mm -hmm. You know, Ram Dass said it this way, the great guru Ram Dass. He said, most people try to counteract I am bad with I am good. But he's like, that doesn't quite work because you're not good. You are smart, dumb, talented incompetent, beautiful, you know, stingy, you are everything. And so he said, the, you can't solve the problem with I am bad, with I am good. You have to solve it with I am. In other words, you have to solve it with self-acceptance. So when we stop, when we stop the war with ourselves about who we are, and I've learned that as a client, then we can become everything that we need to be. And that's what all the stories are about. When Elsa in, in Frozen, that character, was told that her magic was a threat to the community, she went away into this ice castle. She, she disappeared. And then, of course, later on in life, when, when they needed her magic, she brought that very thing that was a curse as a child back to the community as a gift. And so it's about embracing wholeness. It's, it's, it's really the same thing that Jung said when he said, I would rather be whole than good. That's really what loving your horrible, rotten self is. It's, it's loving all of you and, and having compassion, even for your symptoms, even for your flaws and your faults, and understanding that in some context, the craziest behavior makes perfect sense. And that's what it means to love yourself. And when you, as Carl Rogers, the great, great therapist Carl Rogers taught, the great paradox in therapy is that it is only when I accept myself as I am that I can truly change. Mm, that's good stuff. Oh my gosh. This is all such good stuff. In your book, The Audacity to Be You, chapter nine covers some myths. There's about 12 myths. Correct. Something around that. I forget now, 12 or 13. I think yeah. 12 might be right. I think it's 12. And there were four in particular that I really wanted to talk about in this interview because I think that it's something that all parents can relate to. I think right. that's I think these are pretty universal. So the first myth is children are responsible for their parents' feelings. You know, I, I think a lot of parents wouldn't even identify that as a myth. They wouldn't. If I asked them, do you believe that? They pr probably would say no. Actually, that's, that's why this myth is particularly insidious. 
But when you think about it, and, and this was true for me as a young father, and at times in my low moments is true for me today, I thought as a father, I was going to love my children. I wasn't going to make the same mistakes as my parent. But essentially, with my enlightened language, my communication skills, I was going to tell my children when I'm happy or sad with their behavior or disappointed or worried or proud. And I thought when I told them that, then they would know if they were doing the right or the wrong thing. In other words, my happiness, I thought, was their responsibility. It's, it's like going to a child who's struggling with substance use and saying, I'm scared, as if the child is supposed to stop using so you're not scared anymore. The, 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 the contrast to that is, and you know this, you take that fear of a struggling child that any loving parent would have, you go to Al-Anon, you take care of the fear over there, so then when you're with the child, you can be there in service of the child's needs. The fundamental problem, Jamie, in the universe, well, on planet Earth, that's all I know, I, I think the fundamental problem that we don't examine is that most families, most people, the child is, is meant to be, the, the child is asked to take care of the parent's feelings. If you're, mad, if you're my mother and you're mad at me, I did something wrong. If you're happy, I did something right. And then I go out into the world and people wonder, why is he so susceptible to peer pressure? And the answer is because we, mom and dad, taught them to feel responsible when other people who cared about them shared feelings. So that's a, it's an insidious one because I think most people wouldn't identify. I think even after listening to me explain it today, people are going to say, I don't relate or even know what he's talking about. But the, the, the reference to this, I think the most important book that's ever been written about children and child development is The Drama of the Gifted Child. If you want a source to go to, Alice Miller in 1979 kind of broke this open with everybody and said, look, the gifted child, the child who knows how to read other people will give up themselves to take care of the parents. And then they spend their life trying to reconnect to themselves because they've, they've lost it. So that's a, I'm glad you brought that one up because it's so, so, so universal and so misunderstood. And then frankly, so not talked about in the treatment world. You know, talking about earlier when I, when I said a coworker and talking about his child's recovery and the period when he was struggling is that it added texture and yeah. That's one of the things about doing the work in your own recovery is like, I had no idea that I, I raised my daughter primarily as a single parent. And I mm -hmm. had no idea that I had in a lot of ways made her a pair of spouse. Yeah. And so when mommy um, wasn't doing good, you know, I needed her to be X, Y, and Z. And uh, when mommy was doing great, just like you said, then things were great in her world. Right, and that became right. really apparent in my own recovery process. And one of the things that came out, you know, in some of the different times that she was in treatment is, and I still see it in her, even as, you know, a 34 year old woman, the need to try to manage my emotions. Right. And, you know, it's one of those things that's really hard for us as loved ones, because we we need them to be better so that we can be better. Okay. And yeah. that's asking someone who is impaired, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. To again, come and save me. And so it, it is, it's such a struggle and it's, it was hard to come to that realization and then even harder to come to the acceptance that that is a truth that's, that that's... my child is not responsible for my mental, emotional, or spiritual well-being. You know, I'm so glad that you had that experience in Charlotte. I think you even explained it better than I did. 
but in the in the first person the way it shows up in my marriage before i kind of went through the pain of this lesson was um i used to think i was responsible to help my to to, to make my wife happy and that she was responsible to make me happy and what i would say today kind of in line with what we're talking about not parent and child but spouse to spouse is i'm not responsible for my wife's happiness that's her job and she's not responsible for my happiness that's my job and the the idea that that that, that i've been taught now that i've learned now is you try to come to your relationships as, as often as you can with a full belly because if you don't come with a full belly already happy come to your relationship happy you'll ask them to take care of it and if a child's struggling with mental health or substance use on top of whatever neurology is happening whatever patterns are happening you're, you're giving them like you said a great great burden that will be crushing to them and so you go to Al-Anon and you learn you know one of the first slogans they teach you is your response your serenity is your responsibility and whatever anybody thinks about you is none of your business and that includes your mom and dad you know what your mom and dad think of you in a spiritual sense is none of your business right Right. And, you know, again, referencing last week's episode, that was one of the things that Dean really hit on is that when we as parents take the time to pay attention and lean in and learn, our child's struggles actually do make sense. Like there's yeah. a reason yeah. why they're struggling with what they're struggling with. Absolutely. And, you know, learning, I, I think, the other side of the coin that we're talking about, about taking responsibility or, ma- or not making my child responsible for my well-being is that at the same time, it lets me off the hook of thinking that I'm responsible. Yeah. Like I can learn that what they're doing makes sense, but it, I don't have to take on the burden of thinking it's because I was a horrible, rotten parent. Right, right, right. You can give it. You can give it back to them and just focus on doing your own work, healing your own attachment wounds, your own codependency from childhood, which, by the way, will feel really, really good to them because then they don't have to take care of you because you're taking care of you. Yeah. So then they can just be in the business of figuring out what they need to live their life in, 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 a, in a well-adjusted, meaningful way, for sure. Yeah. And, that, and that's parenting well and loving. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The second myth. This is hard for me. I cannot wait to hear what you have to say about it. Parents. This is a myth. Parents should explain the reasons for their boundaries. <laughs> you know, we want buy-in, right? We want agreement. We want um, we want we want them to subscribe to subscribe to our philosophy. I want to be very clear with you, Jamie, and your listeners. It's okay if somebody says, "What's the boundary about?" It's okay to explain yourself, but not for the purpose of convincing them. See what most people and parents do before they get into recovery for codependency, which is a, an attachment idea, before they start to figure out who, who they are and start to heal from their attachment wounding, they believe that it is, it, it is the other person's responsibility to make them feel whole. They really, you know, it, 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 that you have to do that, that you have to do that for them and that you have to do that for the child and that child has to do it for you. And this idea is you're responsible for your own journey. You're responsible for your own your own life, your own path. And so as the child, we, we support them. That explanation to the child or to the other, to the partner is trying to convince them. And the minute you try to convince them that you're right, you've lost because boundaries are non-judgment. Boundaries are, boundaries are, I might be old fashioned. I might be wrong. I might be a nincompoop, whatever word you want to use, but this is my line in the sand. And that's really what a, what a clear boundary is. The way I say it in the book is, the shift is you don't get to be right anymore when you learn boundaries. 
you get to be a self and being a self is so much better than being right because you are who you are and being yourself is is there's nothing that, that can be said about that you can't be talked out of that because that's who you are so for me it's about trying to convince or get the other person to agree with you and the reason we all do that is so then we don't have to set a boundary see if i can convince you that i'm right if I can convince you that you're wrong, if I can convince you that you shouldn't drink, for example, then I don't have to have a boundary with you, which is way harder than, than trying to convince you every day to stop drinking or to, to go to school or to, to you know, exercise for your depression or whatever it is. So it's about that idea about trying to convince somebody that you're right and they're wrong instead of saying, you can do you, but here's my line in the sand. Yeah. And again, back to that same thing that we've been talking about is that the responsibility for self is just so hard to the place where you are authentically responsible for yourself and you're not pawning that off. Because I can totally relate, again, single parent for the majority of my daughter's life and and having my own attachment wounds and, yes. and dealing with abandonment issues and not ever wanting her to feel that. And honestly, I remember when my daughter was placed in my arms, I remember this distinctly 34 and a half years ago, looking in her face and saying, here is my chance to get everything right that I did wrong. Mm -hmm. And I literally raised her not being able to identify where I ended and she began or right. vice versa. Yeah. She was just an extension of me. Yeah. And so everything she said, everything she did, didn't say, didn't do was a reflection of me. Right. And so when the addiction appeared, you know, it's, it's, it's a rabbit hole that parents fall into. And I so want, I so want to speak to this for parents is what did I do wrong? How did I do it wrong? And her addiction is a reflection of my parenting. And today it's not. And right. it's not that I don't still sometimes struggle with that or or when I go to a dark place, I don't think that. But, you know, can you say something to that before I ask you about the next myth that parents don't don't fall prey to the myth that yeah. your kids' struggles are about your lack of parenting? Two thoughts. Okay. Every parent dents their children. I was dented by my parents. You were dented by yours and you dented yours. And I dented my four children, whom, whom I love more than as much as I love anybody on planet. As much as I'm capable of loving, that's how much I love my four children. And I dented them. And part of this, this idea in Al-Anon where you didn't cause it, you can't, can't control, control it, you can't cure it. That, you know, that thing is, it's about saying, yeah, I can come to terms with the fact that I had some screwed up ways about operating that I inherited in part from the culture, from my lack of training, from my, my lack of having a model. And now they're yours. Just like mine or mine. My mother and father absolutely did things to me that impacted me and left that dents and bruises, metaphorically speaking, that is. And now it's mine. And so I think you can kind of embrace the both, the dialectical both of identity them and now it's theirs to deal with. And I'm not responsible for how they choose to deal with those dents. Right? That's really what that 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 saying is about. But the fact of the matter is that that I, I think for me, the the way out of that trap of blame and guilt is to realize that over identifying with the child like you described with your daughter being put in your arms it's really abandonment because mm -hmm. to over identify with somebody is to lose contact with them as an individual person so most people probably when we talk about like addiction isn't you know that that famous wonderful ted talk by johan hari on 
addiction, everything we thought we knew about addiction is wrong, where he says the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. And a lot of people might not identify with that because they're, they're over-connected or over-identified. But when you over-identify with somebody, the other person disappears. They're not present. So you've abandoned them. Just, it's, a, it's like me trying to play baseball with my son because I wanted my dad to play it. I'm not responding to my son. My son, in that example, doesn't exist. Right. It's just me and my dad and my inner child. And I'm not seeing my son. And so in so many ways, with, with, with great motivation to, to try to reverse the trends and not make the same mistakes, we just make different ones. I made different ones with my 27 and 29-year-old than I did with my 20 and 15-year-old. It's just a fact. In fact, yeah. I said to myself, after, you know, I came into the first one saying, I'm not going to make the mistakes of my parents like you. I'm going to do better. And I didn't. I made different ones. And then after the first two, I thought, okay, now I'm not going to make those mistakes. And I didn't make the same mistakes. I made different ones. And if another two came along, which, by the way, that's not going to happen, it would happen again and again because it's being human. It's really the, the dilemma of being a fallible human being. And I think so much of my work is teaching people what it means. To, that's almost what I call the book about what it means to be human, what it means to be a person, and letting our children be people also. So that, that's a little bit of a, a, a rant, as I always do when people ask questions, but those are my thoughts about, about it. They're great. I love them, and thank you so much. Oh, this is a good one, too. It is my duty to give advice to those I love, especially my child. Well, you know, I think a lot of parents will actually tell us upon admission, like, I want my child to listen to me again. I give talks on how to get your children to listen to you. And of course, it's a tongue-in-cheek question because the real healing is about listening to them. I don't give advice to my clients. I don't, give advice to my, I, I, I don't give advice to my children because it's their life. Now, if they said to me, Dad, I've had my children come to me. In fact, my older ones are at this point in life kind of, they tease me about not giving advice. They're like, you got to say something once in a while. But if they say, you know, my, my, my son came to me at one point and said, you know, Dad, what do you look for in a partner? And I said, I don't know. It's like, Alan, I don't know what will work for you. Let me tell you what matters to me. David Bowie, I call this the David Bowie principle. He was being interviewed by, uh, on the BBC many years ago. You could, you could Google this and find it. And the interviewer said to him, he said, can't you just have a drink? He was sober. He said, the interviewer said to Bowie, can't you, can't you just have a glass of champagne at, at a wedding to celebrate? And Bowie said, I cannot. I know what's at stake for me if I do that. And so for me, I made the decision that that doesn't work for me because I don't want to risk everything that I've built. It was all about him. It wasn't, you should, this is what you need to do. I, because I believe this, Jamie, I believe this in my, in my bones. You and I, and I'm speaking to your audience now, you don't know somebody else's truth. That's not your job. Your job is to figure yourself out. And if people ask you questions, you can say, here's what works for me. I don't know if it'll work for me. When somebody says, should I get divorced? My answer is no idea. Should I get married? No idea. But we can talk about it. We could talk about what you're thinking and, and kind of explore the landscape, if you will. Let's, I had a, this is another way to say it. I'll kind of close this answer with this. I was giving a talk on codependency many years ago to a bunch of psychologists. And one psychologist raised her hand and said, Dr. Reedy, how do you justify telling a mother to kick their young adult child out of the home who's addicted to opiates if they could possibly die? And I said, I would never tell a mother what to do, especially and something so important and sacred as, as their child and their child's life, what I would do is try to help the mother heal her codependency, and then she would decide what to do. Yes. Yes. Oh, Brad, that's so good. Thank you. Thank you. So that leads perfectly into the next myth. I would do anything for my kid. 
Yeah, I wrote this one time. It was funny. I got a, a, a reporter from Red Book Magazine. Now it's online. I, I remember when I was a kid, my, my grandmother used to have it. And my mother used to have Red Book oh, yeah. Magazine. And they were saying, tell us two things you would never say to your kid. So I wrote 50 or something like that because I had a long list. And then when the article came out, it was 50. They weren't all mine. But the first one was this one. The first one was, don't ever say to your child, I would do anything for you. Number one, it's not true. You're not a saint. And if you're a saint, then where's your child going to put their anger toward you? They're going to think, I must be, if I'm angry at my mother and she would do anything for me, I must be really disturbed and sick, right? It's an idea that suggests that you're perfect. And it's nonsense. A great source for this is the Invisibilia podcast on NPR, Invisibilia. The episode, I don't know the number, but it was July 1st, 2016. It's called The Problem with the Solution. And it's a, it's a long podcast with a wonderful a bunch of great take-homes. One of the things they learned is when they, when they watched children's, young adult children's brains, and then they played the voice of their parents, they found that the, the brain was hijacked into fight or flight mode when three types of communication were expressed to the child. One was angry, angry parental messages. The, the, the child went into fight or flight mode. Critical, which is kind of like angry, but makes sense. If you're being criticized, you go into defense mode, you know, fight or flight. The third one is not intuitive. The third one was what they called over-identifying language. I would do anything for you. I would go to the ends of the earth. I, I love you more than anything. You're the center of my universe. You're only as happy as your least happy child kind of, type of thinking, which is another one of my myths that I talk about. The child's brain feels that that's a threat also. They feel responsible for the parent. They feel like they have to carry the, the, the parent on, on top of them. So that, that idea that you're only as that you would do anything for your child is not true and it leaves the child with no place to put their hurt and their anger and their frustration and their disappointment they just have to hold it in because obviously only an insane person would be mad at a saint at a perfect parent and since there is no saint parent and no perfect parent it's just fooey it's just nonsense that we have to we have, that's learning to love your horrible rotten self sometimes jamie i'm an excellent parent i'm an amazing parent some days and there's lots of times when I am an absolute buffoon. But I want my children to have access to all the feelings that come from all of that and not tell them when I, by the way, another thing that, that happens is I'll use fear and intimidation and then I'll tell them it's love or I'll use nagging or, or pleading or worrying or anxiety and tell them that's love. And so we're, 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 telling, we're just not telling children the truth because we haven't made peace with this, with this, who we are. When we make peace with who we are, then someone says to you, you know, Jamie or Brad, they say to you, you're, you're an idiot. And you're just like, you have no idea. You've only scratched the surface of my idiocy. If you could see all of me, you would be shocked at the levels of idiocy that I rise to at times. So it's about, again, being human and not trying to be something you can't be, something you aren't. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to have to sit with that for a long time. That's a, that's a mouthful there. And it's great, great wisdom. Thank you. Okay. Another question. What is something about boundaries that most parents get wrong? In, my, in the journey of the heroic parent, my chapter where I talk about control versus influence, it's this. Controlling behavior in parents is not the same as levels of strictness or boundaries. In fact, most permissive parents are controlling. Instead, because instead of boundaries, what, what, they, what they think they're, they're, they're doing is they are pleading, debating, arguing, shaming, right, intimidating to try to get the child to cooperate. And they, they call that boundaries. A boundary is 
this is this i'm kind of cheating and giving you two two things about it a boundary is not for changing other people period full stop a boundary virtually has nothing to do with changing anybody a boundary is about what i need what i'm okay with and, and, and it's really just the expression of, of my selfhood like i don't like mushrooms i'm not talking about psychedelic mushrooms i'm talking about mushrooms on pizza or in lasagna or i don't like mushrooms i'm 54 years old i cannot jamie be in a in a public setting at a restaurant with friends or at a, at a at a dinner party if you remember what those used to be back in the old days where i say i don't like mushrooms without somebody trying to talk me into it so a boundary is just here's my line you can i'm gonna in fact if you're my alcoholic spouse my, my wife my alcoholic wife my wife's not an alcoholic i'm being hypothetical but if you were my alcoholic wife i would say to you i'm done with this i can't have this in my life in fact you can drink if you want i've spent the first 15 years of our marriage trying to get you to stop and i give up I'm not going to try to control your drinking anymore, but I am not going to have it in my life anymore. And you can do whatever you want to do with that information, but this is the line. So the two things are we use emotions to try to coerce boundaries. And that's really what the control is about because you can be very strict and not be controlling and you can be very permissive and be very controlling. So that's one point and I'm cheating and giving you two. And the second thing is boundaries aren't for changing other people. They're about taking care of yourself. So good. I was in a workshop last night on boundaries because I need constant reminders and have to constantly remind myself that boundaries are about me, mm -hmm. like you said, mm -hmm. not about my loved one. And, you know, one of the things that they brought up that I thought was really great was when you live into your boundaries, you live more fully in your values. Yeah. You live more fully in your values you naturally become more and more of the authentic self. That's really, in, in my opinion, I think, I think it was the original idea of therapy. Freud said that the goal of therapy is freedom from unconscious obligations, from the shoulds and shouldn'ts that we've been taught. In other words, the outcome of therapy is to be who you are. And when you are who you are, you don't need symptoms to, 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 to medicate yourself. And you have access, as Brene says, to all your creativity, to all of your wisdom, to all of your energy. So really it's about finding out who you are and then being that person. And it won't be a selfish, hedonistic, insensitive person. It will be somebody full of light and greater love. In fact, in my opinion, until you realize what you're, you're describing at your workshop, I don't think you're really capable of deep, the deepest forms of love because then you're doing it to be good or right or to control people. And, and those don't come from love. Those come from fear. Yeah. Absolutely. I could talk to you all day because mm. like that answer alone spawns 50 questions. <laughs> but I do want to ask you one more question mm -hmm. that I think would be good for our listeners. Another question I want to ask you is what are the most common mistakes that parents make? I, I kind of referred to this earlier, but I think this question allows me to, to give it a more focused answer. The most common mistakes of the parents that I work with make is that they tell their children how they feel as a way to modify behavior. Yeah. That's the most common mistake. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and I say this all the time, people freak out when I say it. I'm almost to the point, I wrote this in the book, I even wrote, I'm almost to the point, so people don't freak out on me. I'm almost to the point where I tell parents, don't tell your children how you feel. And people get all upset and say, well, that doesn't make any sense. But what I mean is, ask yourself first, why am I telling them? And if I'm telling them because I want them to, to change so that I then am happy or can sleep at night, 
It's not okay. It does all the things that we've been talking about this entire episode. I'm going to cheat again and tell you that the second most common mistake that people make is that they, they think that that parent work and parent education and parental growth is about learning how to change children. And it's not. It's about learning how to change parents. The, the parent education doesn't change children. Parent education changes parents. And that change can have beautiful ripple effects in, in life with, with your loved ones and your family and your children. But the principal goal is that you have to make your life your project. And so cheating again, the answer is the biggest mistake people make is they think that their job is to fix and mold children up the way they need to be. And really your work is just to work. The only thing you can do for me is work on you. And the only thing I can do for you is work on me. Mm. Oh my gosh, Brad, this has just been fantastic. I can't thank you enough for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Love talking about this stuff. Oh my God. And you're so wonderful. I mean, you're so wonderful. I know our parents in our audience are going to get so much from this. And if you're um, not a parent that's listening and you know of a parent that could benefit from this, I hope that you will share this episode. So before we close, is there anything that you want to add that maybe we haven't talked about yet? Just take one step. Just listen to one podcast, read one book. It doesn't have to be mine or yours. Just, just, just go to places and just take one step. You don't have to figure it all out. We don't know what we don't know anyway. And so therapy changes once we're in it. You know, we go to Al-Anon. Most people go to Al-Anon if they were honest with themselves because they think they're going to get tricks about how to change the addict, for example. That's why we go. That's the hero's journey is we go, for, we go in for one thing and we come back with something else. But after you're in it for a while, you realize that's not the, that's not the path. The path is to, to work on myself. So the one thing I would leave with people is just try something. Just try something. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And we're going to, again, drop your podcast, which is Finding You at Evoke Therapy, correct? Finding You an Evoke Therapy podcast. Very good. And we'll also drop your books and the website to Evoke in the show notes. And if people want to follow you on Instagram, where do they go? At Dr. Brad Reedy. At Dr. Brad Reed is my handle. So at the at symbol and then D-R-B-R-A-D-R-E-E-D-Y. Okay. And what about Facebook? Brad Reedy. And on Twitter, at Dr. Brad Reedy again. Perfect. All right. Thank you again. You bet. Thanks for listening to A Way Through, brought to you by Archway Academy. The views and opinions expressed by our guests on today's episode are those of the individual and do not necessarily reflect those of Archway Academy. To learn more about us and the topics we discussed, visit us at archwayacademy.org. You can also find us on Instagram at Archway Academy or on Facebook at Archway Academy HTX. Any links we mentioned and links to all of our guests on today's episode are just a tap away in the show notes. We look forward to meeting you here again on A Way Through.